0: The tour manager, who's half my age, comes over to me and says, like, when's the sound guy gonna get here? I say, oh, I'm the sound guy, and he laughs, and then he realizes that I'm telling the truth.
1: I'm talking about, you know, Batman and Robin, Batman Returns, Dayglow costumes, and bat nipples, Jim Carrey and Uma Thurman just hamming it up. I mean, they're not good movies, but they're, they're great in their own way.
2: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Soup Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hinken. This week on the podcast, On the Job Encounters, two stories of unforgettable professional run-ins.
3: Before we get started, we want to thank our
2: longtime podcast
3: sponsor, the Park School of Baltimore, which is a pre-K through grade 12 co-ed awesome school located right outside of the city. So this first storyteller, uh, Natasha Ty Lee, has been a sound engineer and lighting designer for over 20 years in four Baltimore music venues. Um, She's also a single mom, a blacksmith, and a photographer on the side. She also has kind of the best bangs always and forever. Like she has a style that I've always enjoyed, like adored really.
2: I'm really glad that you didn't objectify her by talking about her appearance first. You waited until the end to do that.
3: Save the best for last.
2: There you go. Um, Yeah. So take a listen to the story. What's so wonderful is I think nobody thinks about the sound engineer like you think about the band, that the sound engineer is really invisible and even more so if you're a woman, as we learned through this story. So Take a listen.
0: So I've been doing sound for over two decades. I've ran more than 5,000 shows, and each one of those shows has some nuance uh, that I deal with of sexism pretty much every, every time I work. But I recalled one show recently, sort of recently, um, last winter, that encompasses, it's chock full of sexism and different um, dynamics I'm, I face every time I go to work. Um, it was a winter night uh, at Autobar, one of the four clubs I work in in Baltimore. I show up like I normally do, going to work when everyone else is coming home from work, um, walking into a dark building. I open the door and I get overtaken by the wafty smell of last night's rock show and must and drunkenness, um, which I like, it kind of brings me into the, into the zone that I need to be in. I power on the lights, power on the sound system, put on my favorite record for the the week um, because I have to listen to all my records on the best sound system in the city. So I start that ritual pretty much every night of my life. I used to before the pandemic anyway. Um, So I'm going about my time in the club by myself, setting up the stage, bringing out all the mics and stands and cabling. I have no idea who's playing that night I usually don't know, or half the time I don't know, so I just go with it and I start setting up the normal needs. Um, But as soon as I hear the banging on the door, the aggressive knocking, I pretty much understood what the night was going to entail by that force of knock. Um, So I go, I open the door, and about 30 guys come in, um, all in different, varying shades of black and with like last night's leftover makeup still on their faces, and I could Tell or I was told, but I could tell that it was a glam metal night um, with a touring package of four bands. I was to be mixing the last three. They had a visiting engineer for the um, opening band, and that was the story. So I continue setting up the stage, bringing out more mics, setting up the way I normally do. And the tour manager, who's half my age, comes over to me and says, "Like, when's the sound guy gonna get here?" I say, "Oh, I'm the sound guy," and he laughs. And then he realizes that I'm not that I'm telling the truth. Um, it's not a joke. And then he proceeds to explain all of what needs to go on, as if like I'm eight and I've never worked a show in my life, even though I've worked more shows than he's been alive. Um, so I listen and I grin and bear it the way I always do because they're my clients, and I just have to smile at them and listen to them. Um, so. I continue setting mics, and random guys are coming up to me since I'm still the only person from Ottawa working, um, asking me to make drinks or to fix the toilet, to replace the toilet paper, all these things that are clearly not a part of a sound person's job. So I follow through, I continue with my work and kind of ignore those things. Um, But meanwhile, they're kind of making fun of the music I have on, which is just my. Um, sort of mellow electronic like non-offensive music they're they're like mocking it a lot so they end up bringing out their big boom box and setting it in the middle of the bar floor and pumping a bunch of metal through it I usually like to have calm music before a metal show just so you sort of you know keep your ears. Pristine, but I guess they just want to be all about it. Um, so whatever, I just continue to smile and grin and bear it. So I get through the sound checks and begin to show the visiting engineer his way, or try to show him around the mixing console. But he sort of took the the other sexist angle instead, is wanting to flirt and just talk about like. You know how he could come on to me and all these things. Um, But I'm trying to just talk tech and he doesn't really wanna talk about that so I I leave him to be and let him just figure it out on his own. Um, So we open the doors. It's a sold out show for some reason. Um, And I find out later that there's only three women who paid that night so it's about 375 dudes in the room and you could smell it and feel it, which I'm used to. It's pretty much par for the course every night. So the opening band plays. The sound engineer is clearly a little lost, but you know he's a dude, so he should know what he's doing, right? Um, So I I let it go, and then I start to mix the two bands before the headliner, and the headliner, the vocalist from the headliner, stumbles into the booth at one point, the sound booth, and you can tell he's definitely drunk or on something, um, and he's kind of falling into me, and he. I can't really make out what he's saying, but the two words I could make out was loud and sexy. So, whatever that means, I was supposed to take those notes and go with it. And then after mixing the two um, opening bands before the headliner, the original sound guy comes in and is just so surprised and is just like, "That was great. You did such a great job," you know? And this is a thing that happens to me a lot where people are surprised. That I did a great job. Um, And I know that they wouldn't say that to a a guy. But whatever, I'm used to that. So I just move forward, like always, and grin and bear it. And then the headliner starts. And um, so this is glam metal, so this involves a lot of falsetto. Um, And you could see that this vocalist, this front man, wasn't really fully and he wasn't able to really pull it off like he normally does. He was also probably in his 50s, um, maybe a little past his prime with his falsetto. So usually what happens with that sort of insecurity, if people are insecure about their voice, they tend to ask for more volume. They want everything turned up. They think louder will hide something. Um, So he's asking for more. As soon as he walks on the stage before a note was played, he said, turn it up. You know, and I'm like, well, I haven't even—we haven't started. So, okay, sure, I'll turn it up. But I'm definitely at the limit um, where I can't really turn it up much more, or else it's going to be nothing but feedback. Um, so I turn it up as much as I can. He plays through a song. Can't really make those notes. It's all right. Whatever. It's fine. But then he starts kind of yelling at me. I need more monitors. You know, it's got to be louder on stage. I'm definitely pushing it way louder than I've ever had to push it. And so I make the motion that I'm doing it, but I don't, of course. Um, and he goes through another song, and he still needs more. But it's it's just a it's a thing I've noticed over the twenty some years. When, you know, if you're uncomfortable with your own voice, you you try to project it onto the sound person. It's always the sound person's fault. So I can pretty much be zen with this stuff and let let it go through me. But it was getting to be a little too much because, you know, all of the dudes in the audience are turning around and looking at me because they don't know any better. So he plays through the second song, still wanting it louder, runs off the stage. And then the opening engineer, the rookie-ish guy, comes over and says, he would rather me mix. And usually, this has happened maybe twice in my career. I say no and it's my club, my system, I'm staying here. But at this point, it was just over the top and I didn't want to be there anyway. (laughs) And so I decided to choose that battle to walk away and let them fester in their own whatever that stuff is. Um, So I decided just to let it be. And as I'm walking out, I quickly engage a compressor on the full system, on all the monitors, kind of like a governor, so that they can't really push it past the level that they want to, and so they can't blow any of my system. And I walk away. And as I walk outside, it's beautiful outside and crisp and clear air and as the door slams behind me and all that noise goes away I'm back into this peaceful place I was when I first walked into the club and the contrast of the night air and all the the clearness of that air versus the thickness of the sweat inside was jarring but also the feedback I hear coming from inside was jarring. It sounded like the full rest of the set was nothing but feedback. You could hear the audience screaming a bit, like frustra- frustrated with the feedback or whatever. And I knew they weren't going to blow anything, so I was cool with it. I stayed outside. I waited until I heard no more noise, and it was clearly over. And I walked back in, and um, there was a note on the console, of the, the dude who was trying the other angle of sexism, trying to really um, compliment me and say, I did great work tonight and you know we're really sorry for any, any hurt feelings if I felt any weird way. Um, I've had a lot of these notes left where people are appreciating me after the fact. Um, and as everyone leaves the building, I finally put back on my record and everyone's gone and I coil those cables super slowly and I kind of come back in to my meditation of why I do this in the first place. And it's really just to listen to my own music on the system. Yeah. Thanks. You know, after
2: um, talking with Natasha and just hearing this story, I can't, I know I shouldn't be, but I'm still shocked by how poorly she's treated, you know?
3: Oh Yeah. Well, I just, I think the adrenaline and like the, ego and all of the stuff that goes like people yeah
2: yeah Yeah. and And, it's like these bands feel safer with a with a dude taking care of them right almost like if you were going to get surgery and It was a woman or a pilot was a woman, you know, I I just think, yeah, but for her to have to say again and again, yes, I'm actually the sound engineer for tonight. And yes, I know more than all of y'all put together. It's just, it must get so exhausting. Yeah. It's like, you have to convince people to let you do a good job for them. I don't know. I, I would go, I would go insane. I would literally go insane. But she's not insane. She keeps doing her work and you know, she has those moments of peace where she is in the venue playing her music and loving what she does. So, you know. Yeah. Anyway, before we get going on to this next story of Unforgettable Professional Run-in, we want to thank Golden West, a vegan southwestern restaurant on the avenue in Hamden. Please support them during the pandemic and, and afterward. Um, and Baltimore Magazine, you can find them online and on the newsstand. All right, so this next uh, storyteller is it's
3: just, he's just a really lovely, sweet guy. He, his name is Jonathan Jacobs. He's a freelance actor in the Baltimore theater community. He's been in a ton of productions um, in several theaters and um, he's just really, he's like a good millennial. I know that sounds really condescending, but he's just, he's someone who's trying really hard to do some great self-reflection during quarantine. And he's a delight every time I see him in person and, you know, on the social media. And he's telling a story about, um, well, you can listen to it and and we can talk about it afterwards. Here he is, Jonathan
1: Jacobs. I have been an actor for pretty much all my life and Like a lot of actors, one of the first things that really inspired me to get into it was superheroes. You know, watching superhero movies. I mean, the first role that any actor plays is Superman with a cape tied around his neck. And so I was very excited uh, when my first uh, professional acting opportunity Right as I was getting ready to graduate from college was on an episode of House of Cards here in Baltimore, directed by Joel Schumacher. Now, if you don't know Joel Schumacher's name, you probably know his work. He did The Lost Boys. He did A Time to Kill, a bunch of other stuff. But he's probably best known for the amazing and gloriously cheesy mid-90s Batman movies. I'm talking about, you know, Batman and Robin, Batman Returns, you know, Dayglo costumes and bat nipples and Jim Carrey and Uma Thurman just hamming it up. I mean, they're not good movies, but they're they're great in their own way. So I was hired to be a extra on this episode of House of Cards that he was directing. And if you've never been an extra, uh, it's not exactly glamorous work. you have to stand for long hours at a time you're kind of herded around like cattle and if you're lucky you you get fed pretty well but you have to wait before before the important people eat I was lucky though that I got chosen to be what's called a featured extra which is like a slight upgrade from being a background extra they don't have to pay you anymore because you don't have lines, but you're at least kind of involved in the central action of the scene, and your face gets seen for, you know, less than a fleeting amount of time. So anyway, this particular episode of House of Cards was about uh, protesters, um, and we were sort of the initial wave of protesters, and so the scene that we were in was sort of the initial wave of protesters showing up and so there was a principal actor named Al who was kind of leading us and we were filming right outside the Peabody and the idea was a truck would pull up as we were marching down this alleyway we would come down this alleyway truck would pull up and there'd be a bunch of protest signs in the back of the truck and so Al the principal actor would grab all the signs and start giving them out to us like he's kind of barking orders at us. So we do a couple takes of this. We do like a rehearsal take and a couple on film. And it's just not working. You know, we march down the alley and Al's grabbing the, the signs, but he's kind of fumbling with them. It's, it's awkward. Um, I just think they didn't anticipate how awkward it would be to have all these signs. So, I see that there's kind of some frustration. And so, naively, I turn to one of my fellow background actors. And out of the, under my breath, I kind of say, I don't know why he doesn't just hop in on the truck bed and hand him out from there as opposed to, you know, doing what he's doing now. And so, Al comes back. And sure enough, that actor's like, Hey, Al, why don't you get up on the truck bed? And I was like, Crap. And so, Al says, What? And he points to me, like, It was his idea. (laughs) And I was like, well, I just thought it would be easier for you, and maybe it would look better if you hopped up on the truck bed, pulled the signs out, and handed them from there. And he says, Yeah, that's a good idea. Let me go talk to Joel. So he goes and he goes and talks to Joel Schumacher. And he comes back and he says, Yeah, Joel likes the idea, but I have to hit my mark over here. So he wants you to get up on the truck bed and hand out the signs to everybody. I was like mortified. Like one of the central rules that you learn as an actor is to kind of stay in your lane. You know, let directors direct and you act. But it's Joel Schumacher. You know, if he says jump, I say how oh, high. So I do it. I march down that alleyway. I hop up on that truck bed like a union boss, and I'm just handing out signs like like I own the place, right? So we do a few takes like that. And I guess Joel must have come to his senses and realized like, OK, maybe I should have the principal actor be the one doing this, which I was kind of relieved because I, I didn't want them to think I had sort of elbowed my way into being the focal point of this shot. So we switch it up. And Al says, OK, I'm going to be on the truck bed, but you're my, you're my right hand man. So I'm going to hand you all the signs and then you, you hand them out to everybody. So we do maybe one or two more takes of that, and then we're done. And no offense to Joel Schumacher, but if you look at the scene as it is, like I kind of deserve an assistant director credit, because like, it's, it's, I'm partially responsible for the staging of this shot. Anyway, no big deal. The best part of this story is the next day... This was like a three or four day shoot. And after we had the smaller protest scene, the next day was like, you know, like a bigger protest with like hundreds of people. And um, so we have like, you know, dozens of background extras lined up to be in this big protest scene. And Joel Schumacher comes walking down the line of actors and he's saying hello to everybody. And... He gets to me, and we make eye contact, and he gives me a little wave, and I wave back. And he keeps walking, but maybe five seconds later, I get a tap on my shoulder, and I turn, and it's Joel Schumacher. And he goes, were you the actor who stood up on that truck bed yesterday? And I said, yes, I was. And he said, you were great. And I said, gosh, Mr. Schumacher, thank you so much. This is my first time on a professional film set. I've been following your career since I was a kid, and it's just an honor to take direction from you. And he goes, oh, please. I'm just a kid who started in the costume department and got lucky. Follow your dreams, and you'll do great. And I was on cloud nine. I went and called my dad, and I was like, the director of Batman and Robin just told me to follow my dreams. (laughs) And... I, I thought about this story recently because Joel Schumacher sadly passed away. And I was thinking about why it impacted me so much. And the thing that struck me is that he didn't have to do that. You know, he didn't have to come and say hello to all the extras. He didn't have to take my idea and run with it. But Joel Schumacher never forgot where he came from, right? He he started in the costume shop. And, and he ne- it seemed like he never lost sight of... At one point, he was where I was. He remembered what it was like to be on your first job and to follow a dream. And I'll never forget that kindness, that he took the time out of his day to stop and tell somebody that they were exactly where they needed to be and to keep going. So... Thank you, Joel, and Team Batnipple forever. Look for
3: the silver light. So yeah, I mean, the fact that he got to meet his hero, that he got to have his moment, and that Jonathan was still so humble about the whole thing, um, and that Jonathan knew, (laughs) that really he was kind of jumping the line as far as the hierarchy of extras and it just speaks volumes about who he is and- Yeah, um,
2: well, and I think just anytime you like to have a hero is to put yourself at risk of being disappointed and then to meet a hero is to put yourself at even greater risk of being disappointed and the fact that he is so pleasantly surprised by Joel Schumacher's Menchie behavior Gives everyone hope that this is possible, though I would say not probable. But um, but yeah, I mean just a just a happy encounter. It just fills one's heart with hope and possibility. Yeah. Um, Which
3: you you you, as someone who's had the kind of um, adjacent to Hollywood experience, would say that that's not really par for the course, right?
2: No, I mean I don't know if it is or not there's all kinds of ways in which people can be disappointed by their, their heroes in these situations because they're so stressful. There's so much money involved. There's so much fear involved, all of that. There's so many things that can make a person behave badly um, that all of us would behave badly in a situation, you know, a similar situation. So the fact that he doesn't is great. That's how I would put it. You know, these are just, these are, yes, yes, it is. (laughs) It really is. Um, And I'm also just talking my way out of it. Anyway, um, before we get out of here today, we want to thank the Wine tours, which has been a great sponsor of the Soup Podcast for many years. They're good people. Visit them to get your beverages and your snacks. We want to thank Maureen Harvey for producing the podcast. We try not to have tantrums on set when we're with her. And we want to thank you guys for listening. We'll see y'all back here in a couple weeks. Stay safe the sunny side of life.